starting in verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we gather week in and week out, and as we scatter as the church, uh, church during the week, we realize today and recognize, even with your word open, that we are not alone, that we have the presence and the power of the living God with us, and our God is not silent. He has spoken and he speaks, and we now want to posture our hearts to hear your word. We pray that the ever-present Spirit of God would open not just our ears, but our hearts to receive, understand, and accept all that you would say to us, and that you would teach us, even thousands of years after these words have been lived out and penned, what your purpose is in the scheme of things, and what it looks like for us to surrender to those purposes. May you touch our hearts today. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Amen. Um, I love this story. And I love how it starts, and even as we were speaking about uh, this last week, 
uh, about the trustworthiness of the scriptures of Luke uh, and Luke the writer in wanting to posture uh, the whole gospel in this way. The title of last week's sermon was A Story That Is True. Uh, so I've titled this uh, sermon, A Story That's So Good It's Hard to Believe. And you'll start to get that idea with this guy, Zachariah. But before that, uh, uh, we get kind of a, a backstory to everything that's to come. Uh, and I, I think of this, uh, as one writer put it, the, the capital of Ireland is uh, in the wonderful, uh, the wonderful city of Dublin, And it's famous for a number of reasons, a lot of reasons. People go there from all over the world to stroll through its streets, to drink in its pubs, to visit historic buildings, to see famous places uh, that were made famous by writers like James Joyce. Uh, And perhaps surprisingly, in the midst of this, the attraction in Dublin that draws the most visitors is actually a zoo. After that, the second attraction that, uh, that attracts visitors after the zoo, the second most uh, alluring attraction in all of Dublin is a, a place called the, uh, the Book of Kells, displayed at the center of a special exhibition at the Trinity College. Uh, now, the Book of Kells is actually a manuscript of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's an old one. Uh, it is a wonderfully ornamented manuscript of the Gospels. You can go online and uh, Google the Book of Kells and you will see these beautifully ornated, hand-inscripted, hand-drawn manuscripts of the Bible in a day when people just, uh, they would take word for word the Scriptures, copying them word for word with such reverence and beauty. Not only that, but it's old. It's dated to about 800 years after Jesus considerably closer in time to the New Testament itself than us today. And that's why a lot of people want to see it, not only for its beauty, but also for its age. And when you're in that room, you get this sense. Like a lot of things of historical value, gosh, what I believe right now is not a contemporary construct. It has roots. As you're looking at that manuscript in all of its beauty, you see your roots. Now, Beautiful thing about this whole display is that you don't get to the Book of Kells right as soon as you get into the, into the doors. The people there have arranged the exhibit not to let the public see the Gospels themselves straight away, uh, straight away, but wisely, they lead you first past several other very old books before you get there, which prepare you step by step for the great treasure itself. You are immersed in the backstory of the book of Kells before you get to the actual world of Kells. You are seeing and living and breathing and hearing the world of the 800. So by the time you get to, the, to, the, uh, to that final display, you're already saturated in Celtic Christianity and the things that they were going through, the things that they were val- valued at that, at that time. And when you look at that book, at the very end of the display, you're reading it with all the smells and the history and the backstory that it deserves. I bring that up because Luke, the gospel writer, does that too. This is a book about Jesus. We're not going to get to Jesus for some time. 
Uh, I love the Gospel of Luke because it's so detailed. I mean, you compare it to the Gospel of Mark, and it's long, it's meticulous, it's orderly, it's detailed. There's stories in there that aren't found anywhere else. This is the same guy who wrote the book of Acts, because why not, you know? It's like Luke, uh, uh, Luke part two. And you see this really in the beginning where we have just the longest introduction to the life of Jesus of any gospel. In fact, we're not even, he's only brought up a couple times in this passage. This is about John the Baptist and John's parents. Now, what is Luke doing in this gospel about Jesus? Well, Luke is wanting to immerse you and me into the world of Jesus at that time. So that when we get to Jesus and we hear the things that he says and we see the things that he does and we see what his life is all about, it will come with all of the smells and all of the pain and all of the uh, setbacks and disappointments and conflicts in the world at that time. We'll see it, not just as some floating story in our books, but as something with flesh and bone, with teeth. We'll be able, hopefully, to apply it to our lives thousands of years later today. He's giving us a backstory. These things didn't happen in a vacuum. They happened with real events and real issues and real social concerns and real problems and real conflicts and real violence. That's the world Jesus came into. And so Luke gives us this backstory. And in these first few verses, I'm going to spend uh, most of my time on verses five through eight, um, five through eight. Uh, I'm saying that so that you're not scared when I get to verse nine after a lot of minutes that I'm gonna spend like two hours on this text. I'm not. I'm gonna spend most of my time on verse five through eight so that the remainder of the verses shine more brightly to you. But Luke gives us the backstory in this little paragraph between verses five through eight when he says, Right off the bat, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, and we'll just stop right there, okay? Right there is everything you and I at this point in time, need to know about what's going on. We could put it this way. Life was a barren place for a lot of people. If that's how you want to summarize verse five through eight, life was a barren place, quite literally and also figuratively speaking. I'll just bring up one, one instance. I'll bring up three, but I'll start with one. It was a barren society. And we're getting this, I'm getting this from the first five words of verse five, in the days of Herod. Now, you don't get timestamps like that in the Gospel of Mark or Matthew or John. They leave stuff like that out because it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily fit what they're trying to express in their stories. Luke is doing that because he wants to lock you into the time in history. But he doesn't just want to give you a timestamp. He doesn't just want to tell you this took place between uh, this time right before the first century. He's also wanting to bring up in you all the emotion that a person in the first century would have also felt upon hearing a phrase like that. When you read, in the days of Herod, a chill should creep up your spine. Here's why. Herod was a monster. 
Herod was a monster. He came to power amid a bloodbath in 37 BC uh, by murdering his two brothers-in-law. Not just his brothers-in-law, but his wife, uh, Miramne, and, his, uh, and her mother. Just before his own death, he actually ordered that prominent citizens in Israel would be gathered together uh, uh, in, in this giant uh, stadium to be summarily executed upon the moment of his death so that there would be no mourning in Israel. Kind of a punk. Violent one at that. He wasn't just a monster, he was also an outsider. He was an outsider to Israel who already had this history of outsiders oppressing them. Herod was an outsider uh, hired by Rome as what you might call a puppet ruler. Rome wanting to subjugate all the people in their ever, never-ending uh, expansion of their empire, wanted to displace the authority of Israel's priesthood with a secular power structure, so they sent them Herod, an outsider. Herod was known for his blatant, insatiable desire for control over everything. So he wasn't just a monster, wasn't just an outsider, he was also unjust. Uh, things like control over the temple and the high priesthood. And he would use those things, those things that were meant for uh, the Levitical priests of Israel. That was special for them. This was special in the life of Israel. He took it over and used it for his own political purposes. He wouldn't do, uh, just do that. He would, uh, he would have these wide-ranging efforts uh, at reforming Jewish culture to be more Hellenistic or Greek. Uh, we could call him the great Greek washer of Jewish culture. He wanted to assimilate them uh, into the broader culture and rob them of their own culture. He was known for extravagant building programs. We took a, a trip together. I took about 50 of you out to Israel uh, about a couple, uh, two years ago in a, a, a two, about a week-long, week-and-a-half-long study of the life of Jesus through the place of Jesus. And one of the things that we did, perhaps we'll do this again, don't know, but uh, I will, uh, we took you to one of his mansions overlooking, uh, their ruins now, overlooking the ocean. And you were sitting there right in the living room of one of Herod's palaces looking at this sprawling display of his wealth uh, right next to the backdrop of, of poverty. And he would build extravagant building program, programs paid for by the Jewish people. It's often, uh, it's often uh, told that uh, Rome taxed uh, the people around the world so exorbitantly that they had to work just to pay off their taxes. I believe the number was about 90% of everything that they earned uh, was given back to Rome. Incredibly, incredibly exorbitant. This would go straight into the building programs of Herod. So there's an idea of who we're dealing with and the time period in which we are, right? Herod was a monster, an outsider, and an unjust ruler. And he would have been salt in the wound of an Israel that was already chafing under foreign domination. So when Luke opens up with this little detail, what's he doing? He's giving you a glimpse into the hearts of readers at this time. What was it like to be just your average follower of God in the days of Luke? Well, people at this time would have probably felt deeply oppressed. If you've ever felt oppressed before, perhaps you can resonate with the people who are hearing or reading this, these scriptures. 
Now, they weren't just collectively oppressed, but now Luke, uh, in the next few verses, focuses in not just collectively, but on individual families, Zechariah and Elizabeth, focuses in on them and on the heartache of a family. We don't just see a barren society, we see a barren family. We see in verse seven that Elizabeth was barren. She couldn't have kids. And in the first century, for a woman in the first century, the absence of children was a death blow to your status. It was generally seen as a source of shame and reproach in ancient Judaism. And this also would have affected Zechariah. Now, notice verse 6, how it starts. It says in verse 6, uh, or excuse me, verse 7, but they had no child. Now, what's the but there for? Well, it's connecting you to the verse before it, verse 6. What does verse 6 say? It says, and they were both righteous before God. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It's contrasting these two ideas. They did nothing wrong. This was answering the question that was probably prevalent in those days, uh, that if something was wrong with your life, if you had an illness, if you were infertile, it's probably because there was some sin in your life, you weren't following the Lord, and contrasting those two ideas and crushing them, Luke actually presents this other picture, this picture. They're blameless in their commandments and statues. They are wholly devoted to the Lord, and he's actually uh, one of the priests that stands before God on behalf of the people. They didn't do anything wrong. Life's just unfair. How would, how would Liz have felt in this time and place? She would have felt perhaps a lot of shame. In fact, it tells us that she, she did. Perhaps even though she belongs to, she belongs to a, a family that's looked up to, the family of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, maybe there would have been a little clout and status there, but as a woman who was not able to give birth at that time, perhaps she would have felt ostracized and even marginalized. So who's Luke writing to? He's writing to people who have ever felt shame, who have ever felt ostracized, who have ever felt marginalized, and of course to whole people groups and communities that have ever felt oppressed. This book is for you. Lastly, I think we should also add that this is about a barren, dry spirituality. Now, I want to be careful with this because there are still at this moment, at the moment of this writing, people who are still very much on fire for God. We're reading about one of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are very devout. And there's a bunch of people like Zechariah who are very devout and who love God and the things of God. Uh, the reason why he's doing what he's doing, I, I want to explain the priest, of Zach, uh, priest named Zechariah, the division, all of this stuff. At, that, at the moment of writing, there's about 18,000 priests like Zechariah spread throughout the world. They're not all in Jerusalem. The priests in Jerusalem are usually the high priests, the chief priests. All the other Levitical priests, the one who descended from the Levitical tribe, the ones who have been commissioned to work in the temple before God, are spread all over the world right now. So a, a case in point, this one's in Judea. And they have full-time jobs. They're probably teachers, leaders in the community. Uh, but because there are so many of them, they have to be summoned, almost like jury duty, except it's like awesome for them. 
they actually enjoy this. This is like a, a, a really privileged thing for them. They're summoned uh, at certain times to come away to Jerusalem with their family and serve for a week in the temple. And so he gets the summons. And he gets called to Jerusalem when we find him in the days of Herod going to uh, Jerusalem to serve in the temple. Not only that, uh, but one of those in that particular order, we're told that he's of the order of Abijah, the, the division there. One of those in that division would get the privilege of burning incense in the most holy of places in the temple. Incense in that day was a sign and a symbol of intercessory prayer. It's a sign of intercessory prayer that, uh, to explain intercession, you are standing in the gap, to give it a literal meaning, you're standing in the gap between people and God. You're offering prayers for people to God. And so the, the priest would symbolically offer prayer through incense in the very presence of the living God. You guys hear that? There's like worship music from someone's phone in the back. Hold on. <laughs> Fixed it. Sorry, I couldn't keep going with that. It was like, it's like bells and whistles in my mind just as I'm talking. Um, <laughs> I lost my place. Zachariah is at this point in his life where he is at the height of his career, able to do something that he's been looking forward to uh, for his entire life. This is a special moment. I want you to see the contrast. Uh, against the backdrop of a depressed and barren society, all the things that his family life is going through, all the stuff that is not happening right, Zachariah for one week gets a taste of God. This is awesome. And he gets to stand, even just for a moment, in the presence of God and offer worship to him. Luke right now, like the book of Kells, is preparing us for what the whole gospel is going to be about. And the plot at this point just begins to thicken. In this special moment for Zechariah, he's offering the symbol of prayer before God, to God for the people at this high point of his career. In verse 11, we see in that moment, God reveals himself to Zechariah through the angel Gabriel. This is the constant theme. I just want to stop at this point. This is the constant theme of the Gospel of Luke if you get nothing else. God is found in barren places. If you want to find where God is at, look in the barren places. If you want to see where God is working, look in the marginalized places. If you want to see where God is active, look in the wilderness. If you want to see where God thrives, look in the broken places. Notice that Luke did not tell the story, as almost all historians do, from the viewpoint of those who are powerful and privileged. He's telling the story, and he will continue to tell the story through the marginalized of society. That is where the power of God, historically and scripturally, has always been put on display. 
God is found in barren places. The barren places are real. The wilderness is real. But God is close to the brokenhearted. That is a foundation of the gospel that we so believe. And it's not, he's not just close to the brokenhearted and to the barren in some uh, patronizing or condescending sense, you understand, just a pat on the back. He is there to spread and to give life to barren places and to barren people. Gabriel, on the scene, promises immediately a child who would be filled with the Holy Spirit You have to understand, being filled with the Holy Spirit would happen throughout the Old Testament uh, occasionally on a person here and there, but for hundreds of years, this just never happened. Since the prophets, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit appears again on the scene in the womb. If there's ever a picture of the sanctity and the value of life, it is a, a child in the womb being filled by the Spirit of God. Not only that, but he christens this baby in the womb saying, when he's born, he will turn many people to the Lord, verse 15 through 16. He will prepare hearts for the Lord, the Messiah who is to come. Here's this little glimpse into Jesus coming, but he's just setting the scene. You're not there, uh, right there at the, that, that ending exhibition. You're, you're back here in the hallway, and Luke is just, just bringing you through the showcase kind of giving you all the smells and all the experiences and he's giving you a, a, some categories by which to immerse you into the life of Jesus. When Gabriel makes this announcement, he is quoting one of the last prophets to ever preach. Malachi chapter three, verse one, and chapter four, verse five through six, says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you, are, you will be seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord God Almighty. And listen to this. It says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the, that the Lord comes. Elijah was one of those prophets in the Old Testament who was constantly screaming to the people of Israel to turn back to God. Malachi is saying there's going to come a day when Elijah comes, comes again. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And then 400 years later, Gabriel comes in on the scene and says, Elijah has arrived. It's John the Baptist. In a barren land, a barren family, and a barren period of faith, God brings life. You have to understand, even though Zechariah was incredibly devout, Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 18 says that God's presence no longer dwelt there. Ezekiel was the one who saw in a vision that God's spirit departed from the temple a long time ago after call upon call to God's people, turn back to me, stop serving these false gods and false idols. After centuries of doing this, God's spirit departs from the temple. It was in Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39, that Jesus himself says, hey, this temple is gonna be destroyed. How I have longed to wrap you into my arms, to take you into my arms, but you were unwilling. And so your temple will be be laid for you desolate. Jesus is saying this in tears. And for 400 years, God appears to be silent. So it's not just 
a society that feels oppressed. It's not just a a family that feels shamed, but it's a spirituality in which perhaps people are asking, where is God in the midst of all of this suffering? And in a barren land, a barren family, and a barren period of faith, God brings life. I love the passage in Isaiah 43, verse 18 through 19, where God speaks through Isaiah and he says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. In this case, we see his redemptive purposes coming in the midst of barren places, not outside of them. We can find God's most radical and saving and healing power and activity and kingdom work among barren places. It was of John, who was described in Mark chapter one, verse three, as a voice that cries out, where? In the wilderness. What's your wilderness today? What are the barren places in your life this morning? What are the barren places in our lives, collectively as a church, as a society, as people? What does a wilderness look like for each and every one of us and us together? Look at the response to Zechariah. God brings life to the barren womb of his wife, but he does it for a grander purpose. It's so that his child, and we're told about this in the passage, can turn many people back to God, can turn fathers' hearts back to their children, the reconciliation of broken families, perhaps, can turn disobedient people back to the wisdom and justice, Luke says, or Gabriel says, excuse me, can prepare people for the Lord. And here's our first glimpse of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. This John will pave the way for this God-man, Jesus Christ. But his life is even bigger than just removing the reproach of Elizabeth. I love this because God meets them in their felt need, but then he moves them to something bigger than themselves. God cared about Zachariah and Elizabeth's individual hopes and fears, and he cares about your individual hopes and fears too. But he also cares about his purpose for society, for community, for the world, for our spirituality being accomplished through them and through you. God cares about what you're going through. But sometimes the best thing God can do for you and me is to get you thinking beyond yourself. Sometimes your best source of healing comes from outside of you. Sometimes the antidote to what's right in front of you is what God has been doing around of you for years. And God is calling some of you who are like this to do this. And open your eyes to the kingdom of God that has been made presently available to you in Jesus Christ. This is the point of John's birth. He ain't even here yet in the story. And look at what God calls Zechariah and his family, and specifically his son, too. If you start thinking about it, these are all painful things, too. From pain to pain. 
He calls him to bring people to repentance. And Zechariah is not going to be outside of this. John the Baptist is going to call the people of Israel to repent. That means Zechariah and Elizabeth too. He's going to call fathers and, and their children to reconciliation, broken relationships to be mended. That's painful sometimes. He's going to call people to a, an extra level of surrender to the Lord. These are all wonderful and beautiful things that come from the gospel, but how many of you have tried them and have noticed they're painful too? They're actually beyond our comfort zone sometimes. Have you ever noticed that God sometimes answers our prayers with answers that we didn't expect? I kind of know how I want God to answer my prayers. And I don't want him to mess that up or to add his two cents sometimes. Have you ever noticed that God answers our prayers sometimes with what we never intended or wanted in the first place? Or what we're not prepared to follow through with? Like we asked for this and he gave us this? Have you ever noticed that sometimes God's answers are too good to be true? When all we wanted was to have a kid, go back to Judea, eat some waffles, do some community work. My kid can take care of me in my old age. We'll live a happy lifestyle. And instead, he gives us one that's going to be a rebel-rousing prophet of Israel, shaking things up in Herod's palace and get beheaded eventually. Anyone find yourself in this position saying, God, I don't want that kind of help. I just want you to make my life a little more comfortable, just a little and that's it. Heal me, fix me, make me happy, and then go away. Great American prayer, right? Listen, God cares about the smallest details in your life. All of them. He cares about what you're going through. He cares about what you're afraid of. He cares about your family struggles. He cares about your addictions. He cares about the things you think in your mind at night that nobody else knows. He cares about that thing that has you entangled in shame. He cares about your rent check. He cares about your sickness. He cares about the fact that you're a single parent trying to raise kids and make it in this town. He cares about all of that stuff. He cares about your divorce. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your singleness, and the list goes on cares about you. Jesus himself was the one who said, if he cares about something so small as a sparrow, which he does, he certainly cares about people who have been made in his image. But you should know this up front as we go through the gospel of Luke. While God cares about you and God wants to save you and to restore you and to renew you, he will also, in the process, call you away from what's right directly in front of you into something that's a whole lot bigger than just your life. God is on a mission. And Zechariah, for whatever reason, I don't know what that reason is, but he thinks of all the ways God's promises simply cannot happen. Verse 18 through 23. He essentially says, prove it, God! Now, this is not the same question that Mary would ask a chapter later. How in the world could this be, this sense of awe? Like, what? Zachariah is asking more in this sense. 
He literally says, how can I know this to be true? Prove it, God. And I love Gabriel's response. Oh, my goodness. Do you know who I am? Gabriel. Do you know? Like, I'm Gabriel. I showed up in Daniel. I showed up four times. I am the messenger of God. I stand in his presence. We, like, we, we hang out together. I destroy demons with my breath, man. And you're quite like... <laughs> So he mutes him. <laughs> he says, you want a sign? I'm going to shut you up for a while until your son is born, okay? And he goes out, and I just can't help but imagine this scenario. It doesn't give us, like, the details of this, but somehow he goes out, he can't speak, and everybody figures out, okay, he must have seen a vision. Like, what, how did that look? Was Zachariah using hand motions? How do you explain to someone with no voice that you've seen an angel? Just, you know, like... But somehow, somehow, it connects, it clicks. Gabriel's words and ultimately God's words are deeply felt. But perhaps some of you are where Zechariah was. You're struggling right now, discouraged and hopeless. And maybe some of you don't want to believe. Maybe you're listening to this and you come from a long background and history of being disappointed by people so many times. Maybe it's by people in the church. Maybe it's by people outside in your workplace. Maybe it's your own family. Maybe it's friends, betrayal. Maybe it's bigger cultural forces that have hurt you, and you don't trust people. And you're looking at me with your arms crossed, even if it's symbolically or figuratively, and you you just don't trust people, and so this is hard. And I just want to say that that's okay. You don't have to trust people today. But you can trust God. So while people have a long history of letting others down, I have yet to see God letting people down. And in verse 25, we see this whole story ending with God's promises coming true. Elizabeth conceives, they have a child. Now, when I say promises, I'm not saying that you'll never encounter setbacks in life. I'm not even saying we can apply this Uh, at face value to our life, that infertility will never be a problem or that we'll never have illness or pain in this life. The Bible tells us that we will encounter trials in this life. Life is unfair. God has a a, a plan to deal with it, but we're gonna encounter difficulty and suffering in this life. The promise here isn't that we'll evade those things. It's that in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the barren places, God will be present with people who believe. He will be with you and he will even bring beauty out of the darkest and driest ashes, out of the barrenness, out of your wilderness. This is seen most vividly in the person that John was born to give a view of in Jesus Christ. I want to end with a couple things. One, even though Zach had his moment of doubt, and he's paying the price right now, he would, after being rebuked by Gabriel, eventually go home and step out in faith. And they would have a child. He eventually would believe and accept the promises of God and say, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna step out on this. I wanna ask you right now, where are the barren places in your life right now? Where is the wilderness? Where are the things that 
are pulling you down, that aren't working, that are dry, emaciated, broken. And I want you to begin to think differently about those places. Could God be doing something there right now that you're unaware of? And if that's the case, where do you think God is challenging you to step out in faith today? For Zachariah, it was, I'm going to go home to my wife. For you, perhaps it's something else. I don't think there's a person in this building who will ever evade the barren seasons in life. The hope of the gospel is we are not without comfort. God is present, not just as a pat on the bat or a back or the exception, but God thrives in barren places. And he's come to those people who are struggling to give them good news of great joy and hope. But if you trust him, he will be found there. And in the midst of those barren places will be flourishing and the activity of God's kingdom, hope and comfort, joy and love. Where do you need to step out in faith this morning? Let's ask this question even as we begin to sing together. Heavenly Father, come before you this morning and ask together that as we sing songs about you, words that express who you are and what you've done, that we would respond to you. That even if there are some of us who are struggling with the same doubts as Zechariah, but in different contexts and different circumstances, we'd bring those things before you, not skeptically, not with our fist raised at you, but with open arms and the faith of a child. I pray for everyone in this room who is dealing with something right now and who is struggling, and I pray that they would sense the nearness of your presence this morning. But I also pray that what was seen in the life of Zachariah and Elizabeth would also be completed in us, that we wouldn't just be fixed by you where we hurt, but that our eyes would be opened to see the grandeur of who you are and what you're doing all around us. That when the angels would come in, even chapters after this, to describe to the great joy of some of the most hurting people on the face of the planet, there is reason to have joy. We too would be caught up with what you are doing in and around us. We don't any longer want to live simply for ourselves even though you care so deeply about ourselves. May we be caught up in the things of God to live for what you are doing and who you are in the world around us. We love you, God. Kindle a fire in our hearts today by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.